We're talking about making space for the whole you, for every part of you without forcing you to hide who you are. Because if you don't bring all of you to the table, then you don't bring all of the gifts and the benefits and like the perspective that when we talk about the benefits of having diversity in the room and how that helps us be more creative and make better decisions and identify risks better, like you're not bringing everything to the table that you could provide. You're doing yourself a disservice. As human beings, I feel like we're here for that, to be seen, to be heard, and to be fully honored for who we are. Heyo, welcome to the Asian Detox Podcast, the podcast where we boldly reclaim Asian American prosperity. We have relatable conversations about how being Asian American shows up in our day-to-day lives, how money is deeply embedded in our culture, and how you can choose to define your own version of success in a world that tries to tell us how to be. I'm your host, TJ Wei, your hashtag very Asian, non-binary, gluten and dairy-free money habits coach, and I want you to know that you don't have to live in the boxes other people put you in. You can design your abundant life in a way that honors your heritage while enjoying a life of ease and alignment. And you can do it while making money and building generational wealth. I am super excited today to have Ayan on as our guest. Ayan is a leadership coach to black and brown executives and rising leaders with intersectional identities. His pronouns are they, them, and he, him. Ayan is on a mission to coach 1 million leaders how to harness the power of their emotions for more impact and well-being. He's the CEO of Unearth Freedom, a global coaching practice, an advocate for cultural healing, and a certified energy leadership index assessment master practitioner. As a Desi trans and queer leader at home in South Asian diasporas, Ayan is culturally powered and ancestrally guided. He loves mangoes, the Pacific Ocean, and manifesting money. Welcome, Ayan. Thank you, DJ. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So before we get started, please let everybody know where they can find you. Yes, I love LinkedIn. So the best place to find me is on LinkedIn, and that's www.linkedin.com backslash I-N backslash A-A-Y-A-A-N. Perfect. Or you can just search for Ayan in the search bar. Yes. And I love your posts on LinkedIn. So definitely go check them out. So as an icebreaker, if your parents were in the grocery store running into a neighbor, how would they describe what you do? Yes. So I actually asked my mom this question a few weeks ago because I was curious how much of what I do she grasps and like what language would she use to describe it. She was pretty spot on. I don't know like (laughs) what my dad would say. I think they both understand that I'm a coach and that my work combines leadership and emotional well-being. And that's the transformation that my clients see. I think they get, you know, the big picture. Before you got to this spot, did they have a career in mind for you growing up? No. And I love that you asked this question because as we get into more of my story, I'm sure that we'll touch on other parts of this, but my parents raised me and my sibling in what I think is an unconventional way, not just for South Asian or Asian parents, but more broadly, they were very 
they operated as parents from a place of trust. So they never said, here's what you have to do, even though, you know, all around us, that is the parenting approach that we encountered, which also makes sense because as a coach, and you know this too, like some of the careers that we're in now didn't even exist Yes, or weren't even known to our parents like 10, 10 years ago. I, I love that you mentioned that because I remember being in first grade and my teacher wanted us to draw what we wanted to be when we grew up. Yeah. I ended up becoming, first of all, like now I'm a money coach, but before that I was an IT project manager. How do you draw that? Yeah. <laughs> I have no clue. (laughs) So like having that more open-ended and not being like expected to be able to articulate that at the ages of six, seven, eight, like that just makes so much more sense now that we talk about the types of careers we can have now. I think I drew an astronaut because that was like the example she used. And like, clearly I knew what an astronaut looked like. Oh, absolutely. You know, something that comes up for me when I hear you say that is even though my parents were unconventional in that they didn't impose their views of what career we needed to have onto us, it was very much a cultural reality for my parents and all other parents to expect you to be a high achiever. Mm. And that to this date is something that I see as a cornerstone of Asian cultures like expecting our kids to perform, to meet external standards that the kids or the adults aren't setting themselves. Mm. And I work with leaders who come from other melanated black and brown communities who have similar challenges that they now need to work through even in their like mid 40s and so on because that conditioning that we get at such a young age is so it just imprints onto you it's so yes you know central in how you see yourself and how you relate to yourself right yeah it's how we're taught to compose our identity like we put our job as part of like who we are And it's very difficult to unpick, especially because we don't teach individuals how to decide for themselves what was like programmed into them and what is meant for them or how to examine that. Because I would argue if everybody did that, we would have a chaotic society. So it's to the benefit of society that not everyone does. But like you said, you get to like your 30s and 40s and that's where like the midlife crisis conversations come into play. Where like for me, I did a decade as a project manager and was pretending that like being in a corporate environment was good for me. Mm. And I like, we'll touch on some mental health things, but like for me, it wasn't healthy because I couldn't, at least not in the environments I was in. I would argue there are probably cultures, like corporate cultures now that I could join that would be more accommodating to being like visibly Asian or non-binary and adopt pronoun culture and all of those things. But I wasn't in those spaces in the positions I was in. So leaving was the most clear cut way to get myself to a healthier place. Yeah. So what about for you? Like, what does that expectation of being a high achiever, like how did that show up for you or how did you observe it in your peers? Okay. So I would say that for me, 
learning how to uncouple myself and like who am I from being a high achiever and somebody who's really good at school, who's really good at college, who's really good at my job was very much key to my success. Mm-hmm. And also why I love what I do today and why I chose to create and run my own business. I remember having a moment in my teens, like right as I was crossing into adulthood where I'd been experiencing anxiety and depression for about four years. And the best way I can describe it is it was a sense of just feeling lost. Mm. I felt very existentially lost. And that was also fueled by all the pressure that I kept putting on myself to do really well in my classes, do really well at like the million things that I'd signed up to lead and be part of. So that pressure really started to like erode my sense of well-being on multiple levels and it spread into all areas of my life, like the food I was eating or not eating, right? Like how present I was able to be in my relationships, like how supported I felt by people around me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I would say also like, my relationship with myself was impacted by the fact that, you know, for the most part, all I knew about how to relate with myself was through how well am I doing by these standards mm. that I didn't, that I haven't set. Or how to measure yourself. Yeah. And that's so much pressure. And when I say that it was key to me rewriting my idea of success and how successful I feel now, is because I shifted and started focusing more on like the present moment feeling. And actually you see, I mean, for folks who will catch a snippet of this on video, you'll see a thangka behind me. And if you're on audio, what that is, is a Tibetan Buddhist scroll. And it's the seven symbols that are central to Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism was actually where I began to unlearn and unravel that way of relating to myself and began to come back into how am I feeling now? Like, what do I Mm -hmm. want right now? And where can I find delight and peace in myself right now? Not at some, you know, destination. Right, right. At some point in the future when I've achieved enough by society's standards or by my own some milestone yeah by my own like unrealistic standards so yeah so i want to dive into a couple areas there first of all to like really set the stage of what it means to be a high achiever the sense that like we have those external expectations and we get given milestones it's typically talked about as like a ladder that you're trying to climb this ladder and you mentioned signing up for a lot of activities or a lot of commitments and that's a big part of it too it's not just getting really good at one thing when you're a high achiever it's about doing it all about being everywhere being well-rounded being the renaissance man and like it's no wonder at least when you're a teenager that that turns into being disconnected from yourself because you're so busy taking in information and talking to other people about all the things that you have to get done, that you don't have time, there's no brain space to just sit and be you in, like, because you're still like, you have to get decompressed first. And then doing inner work is heavy shit. Oh, 
Yes, all of that. You summed that up beautifully. Yeah, so the transition from high achiever to being more connected with yourself. You mentioned the Buddhism. Is your family Buddhist or is that something you discovered at a later stage? No, my family. So I grew up in a multi-religious household and a multilingual household. My family is <laughs> unconventional in this regard too, but my mother's family is Sikh and they're Sikh Punjabis and my dad's family's Hindu, but he doesn't really practice. My grandfather is very actively religious, like he keeps what we call the five Ks in Sikhism. My mom is connected to the religion, but she doesn't she practices in her own way. Like she's not into the organized. Yeah. Organized religion. Yes. Yeah. And I found Buddhism right as I was transitioning from teenagehood to adulthood. Awesome. So how did you discover Buddhism? I feel like I was divinely reminded. I believe in the divine. And when I say the divine, I mean what I believe is universal intelligence. Like same as when we feel connected to ourselves, we can feel the texture of what it's like, that quality of life. And when we feel connected to beings around us, like water, trees, to me, that's a sign that we're all endowed with creative intelligence and that we're all sort of witnessing what it's like to be a creative. But I didn't know that when I was 18, when I found Buddhism, I used to be very agitated and it was largely unconscious, but of course I felt the effects of it, but I didn't, wasn't conscious enough to realize how it was impacting people around me. Mm. That's another thing that I love working with leaders on. Even when they're very skilled, there are these blind spots that you're not conscious of. And because you're in an influential role, those have an emotional impact on people ah, around you. It's so true. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like I, I love that you bring that up in terms of being in leadership because I've observed in my own career that behaviors that might've been okay when you were an individual contributor are suddenly not okay when you have a new title or direct reports or a certain level of status because suddenly there's just a new lens on top of you and they get interpreted differently. And the, the weight that your words have is so much heavier. Um, I can't even describe like by the magnitude of how much, but suddenly just by changing that title, you have to at least be aware of the impact of what you do. Like you may not choose to change it, but you do need to know and recognize that something that you might've done casually with your peers now that you're their boss is going to be different. And whether or not you do something about it is a personal choice. And depending on what it is, it may actually be a positive thing, right? To, to be able to maintain relationships. But I think that's something that people miss a lot when we talk about like how much we need to ladder climb. But we don't talk about every time you go up another rung on that ladder, you have to change your perspective on who you are. You're not just going to stay the same like, oh, we'll just keep going down this path. This has always worked for me and it'll keep working. There's actually an evolution that goes with that. Oh, wow. Yes, I'm like soaking that in. I, I love the way that you reflect what you hear back to me and to your audience. Like, truly feel like you have a gift there. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, evolution is... People think that it's just like a biological thing that, you know, we're 
evolving because that's how we hear the word used most often. Mm-hmm. Yes. But when you begin to lean into and learn from the wisdom of what so many Asian traditions have taught us, it, it really is this realization that we're evolving every moment. Like that is a natural state of being Octavia Butler, who's a black sci-fi writer and a, a legend said that God is change and the only thing that is constant is change. So that feels really important to me right now because we're coming out of and back into a pandemic, like we're fluctuating. Yes. You know, some of our activities have resumed, but we're still on guard to some degree because it's not like people have stopped getting mm-hmm. sick of COVID. The virus is mutating and scientists are now saying that it's going to continue to mutate, which I hope that, you know, we realized by this point. But when we look at how that impacts showing up with each other, whether you're a solopreneur, but especially if you are someone who works with people, if you're a leader of some kind, or even if you are on your way to being a leader, like you don't feel like you're there yet, but you want to step into what it means for you to be a leader, that climate affects us. And so if we aren't evolving by like being more attuned to how people are feeling in the aftermath of this like global event and then another global event with MBVX, I think those leaders are just missing a huge opportunity to really make a positive impact. Yeah, I love how you put that. It's an opportunity to make positive impact. It's not just like doing your job. And and I think a lot of people do crave that in terms of having a positive impact, but we get lost in the doing part because there's constant demands and then it goes back to the high achieving thing. But even mm-hmm. just trying to meet others' expectations, we don't stop and think, okay, but are these expectations ones that we want to accept? Like you have to decide when you're a kid, like if your parents did tell you what you had to be when you grew up, you had to decide whether or not that was really going to be for you because it's your life. So it's the same when it comes to leadership that I know a lot of leaders who are on that more macho traditional side where you have to be a firm leader and be demanding and like don't take excuses. And there's other leaders who are a lot more flexible and willing to listen and trust their their teams more. Um, or at least demonstrate trust in a different way. And then I see that evolution of like, in IT, at least in my background, it was an age group of like, if you sat in this age group, we were basically waiting for those people to retire because we were ready for a new way of leadership that was a lot more collaborative. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that really, like what you just said, like we're waiting for people to retire because we can see this tendency that the older you get, the less flexible or agile you get in terms of like how open you are to new ideas. And I know that there are plenty of older leaders or just old folks in general who are like rocking with the times who are totally consciously maintaining that openness. So I always come back to like, are you invested in this? And like, Mm. If you're not, is it because you don't know how or because you don't see the importance of 
being emotionally intelligent. Like that really is just what it comes out. If you don't see the importance and if you think that it isn't of service, then, you know, then that's your own journey to go on. But if you want to be and you don't know how, then that's where you find folks to help you. So is that where you come in when somebody realizes that they want to go on this emotional intelligence journey, but they just need some help and some guidance? Where where do you step in and how do you support them? Yeah, that is where I come in. And, you know, right now, the only way to work with me is one-on-one. I have a very luxurious, very intimate one-on-one experience that I offer people. And it includes a baseline assessment of like, how do you respond emotionally in stressful situations? Because we know that the world of work today for everybody, especially for leaders is very stress inducing. And like you said, all the things to do that are constantly like demanding your attention, it doesn't help. So we assess that baseline response. And then we go into a deep dive, like what is an area in your professional and or personal life, those things are often connected where you want to grow, where you're really trying to graduate to the next level when it comes to your emotional awareness, when it comes to your awareness of what you are feeling and what stories behind that, right? And I want to pause there for a minute and really dig into that because also one of the reasons why I was so excited to be on your podcast is because you can see how culture has influenced my methodology. Like that's not something that a lot of coaches talk about in the coaching world. And I think that has to do with how coaching is whitewashed, how we're again, all sort of being taught like the coach training program I was in, we were being taught competencies that are created without a cultural and race consciousness. But when I serve my clients who are black and brown, who are also queer and trans, disabled, maybe they have an invisible chronic illness, maybe they're new moms, there are all these lived experiences that they're bringing into the space with us that are also influencing the stories that tell about who they are. And so when we dig into that, it's really juicy and it's really transformative for people because it is a space where you get to now identify the story that was playing in your, in your subconscious mind that was dictating or guiding your behaviors and your beliefs. And you get to rewrite a story that is in line with what you desire. There's, there's a lot there. I love that you bring in like that cultural awareness and to talk about the stories that get them to like, that are underlying either the fear or the barriers that are keeping them from that growth that they so strongly desire. And I love that too, right? That you're, you purposely say of these areas, which one do you want to change the most? Because we can't force anybody to change. We can't go and like, you take somebody's performance review and you like take their lowest score and you like want to train them in that area. But if they're not interested in that topic or growing in that space, or if there's something that's calling them, then it does them no good. And I totally agree with you in a lot of spaces, when we talk about being whitewashed, it's not necessarily like about what race you are, but it's this concept of like commercialism and capitalism, where if we make everything standard, 
and cookie cutter, then it becomes scalable. Then it becomes easy to sell. And then we can promise a certain thing because it's like, oh, if you just do this, then you'll get these results. And that's a great pitch and like it makes it easy to sell. But that's only on the business side from a, a result and transformation perspective. Like I love that you talk people through like what stories that they're like from their childhood or their upbringing or culture are positioning them in a certain yes. way. Because I strongly feel that as a money coach, even for some of like my boundaries and some of my money mindset things, if I can't talk them out loud and identify them, call them out specifically as what's causing my block, then I can't change it. Like I may know there's something in my past, but if I never examine it, then I can't make that adjustment. Yes. It also is really powerful for people who have gone on to senior leadership roles without ever having a coach, but that's more common Mm -hmm. than you would think. And they realize exactly what you just said, which is in this space, like I'm the guide, but you're the highest authority of your life and also of this time. So this isn't about me telling you what to do. It's about you realizing that you have the space to finally vocalize what are those deep barriers, you know, those admissions that are vulnerable. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I've been thinking a lot about, obviously, like I'm a coach and that's my practice. That's my vocation. So I focus a lot on making sure that my clients are getting the best of me as a coach, but also a small business owner. So I'm also thinking about the business side of this practice. Yes. And I learned pretty early on when establishing Unearth Freedom that I didn't want to go the cookie cutter out. Like I wanted to find, and I have found ways to grow this into a sustainable, flourishing business without those salesy, like one size fits all like bitches. And I'm, I'm really stoked about it because yeah. my strength is in learning what's at your core, right? And everybody's going to have a different story. Everybody's not going to have the same language doesn't resonate with people. My background is in consulting and specifically in communications for social change. And, um, we know this, like based on your upbringing, based on, mm-hmm. you know, how conservative or progressive your family's political leaning is and was, um, even what educational access you had. There's so much diversity in our communities that the same language isn't going to resonate with people. So I've tailored, you know, my ways of reaching out to folks who would be good to work with me, would be benefited from working with me by not doing the cookie cutter approach, by really making an effort to connect personally and build trust without expecting them to buy from me. Like I really feel like that's so key. Yeah, and and that is definitely the harder route to take. Mm -hmm. And I I know that a lot of people when when they feel this this cognitive dissonance between like what's considered like good marketing practices and good sales practices, or when they hear the word sales they get anxious because it is counter to the concept of we just want to be genuine and authentic and support others in the work that we do. But we keep getting told like, this is the best way to do it. And like, 
I think most of us get some kind of copy and paste sales pitch on LinkedIn or in our DMs. And we're always sitting here going, wait, what is this? Have you even read my profile? And we just have that aversion to it. Like it's not something where you make the choice, but you still have to consciously check yourself every time to see whether or not you're you're putting yourself in that weird sales space versus the the more time intensive and very intentional way of connecting with your audience. So definitely want to highlight that like first of all it's not like a a yes or no switch that we can turn on but that it's definitely the harder route so i definitely relate to you in that sense because i feel the same way of wanting to treat everyone like an individual and support them the way they best need support and for me that includes like if i'm not the right person for them to go to for money coaching and sometimes when we talk about money it's connected to all sorts of other things right it's connected to sales and revenue and operations mm-hmm then I want to be able to connect them to the right person to address the most immediate pain point or the pain point that they want to grow in the most. I love that. As a first-generation Asian American, I grew up trying to fit into the boxes other people put me in. I considered acting, voice acting, and writing as career options when I was little, but ended up joining corporate America as an IT project manager to take the Asian parent-approved path. The good news is, it's not too late for me to follow those more creative goals, but I didn't have the energy to work both my corporate job and follow those passions. And I couldn't shake the cultural directive to be financially stable so that my parents wouldn't have to worry about me. It's so ingrained in me that it's difficult to focus on more creative pursuits or what might be considered passion projects without the financial backing to support myself. That's why I'm such a big fan of building systems and financial foundations that leverage my hashtag very Asian frugal money habits and the more expansive abundance mindset that I strive to embody every day. While sitting at my corporate job feeling like there must be more to life than this, I spent years learning and absorbing information about how to become financially independent, invest in real estate and stocks, and build a business. And now, I'm on track to retire by 40. But more than that, I have the freedom to dress how I want, because how I dress now is certainly not considered professional, adopt unconventional pronouns, and work fewer hours to support my physical and mental health. I get to choose what clients I work with, who I spend time with, and what boundaries I need to set in order to keep the toxic expectations and hustle culture at bay. And I want that for you too. If you're ready to make your next big money move and build the financial foundations you need to feel like you can show up as your full self, I have an offer for you. My generational wealth building money mentorship program is three months of direct access to me and my brain to cut through all of the noise and conflicting information on the internet and get you where you need to be financially. Get a wealth building strategy, action plan, curated resources, and emotional support to put you on the path towards your abundant life. The link is in the show notes. I want to go back to what we were talking about right before this came up, which was, and of course it's connected. I mean, money stories are huge, like huge for people. I wanted to offer an example because that helps me really feel the texture of what we're talking about. And when I say like, we are telling ourselves stories about who we are, and that's actually at the foundation of what's guiding our decisions, our emotional patterns, our beliefs, both about ourselves and about other people. An example that's really common with the clients that I love 
serving is this notion of being a giver. So the story is that it can be that I love helping people. I love giving and I put my needs second and other people's mm-hmm. needs first. So it's definitely common refrain. <laughs> you know, like I said, I work specifically with black and brown leaders and often black and brown women leaders. The first thing that I think is unique about our dynamic is that I'm never going to invalidate your story. Like when you trust me with that, a lot of people don't know how to hold space for someone's story. But by that, I mean mm. just non-judgmentally yes. be present without projecting your views onto this person who's being vulnerable with you. So when they share this, I'm never going to invalidate them, but we are going to inquire into what's really going on. And if they've created a certain judgment of themselves that they've then tried to fit into with their actions. And that's usually where things start to blow up for people. And they're like, oh my God, like, the words that I've been using for myself. I just had this conversation with someone a week ago and they were like, I had set aside some time to work on something. And then I got a call from a loved one and they really wanted to come over. And suddenly, like I wanted to say no because I needed that time for myself. But also, it's my loved one. They're not an inconvenience for me. And I was like, hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Tell me more about like what's really behind that judgment of like what an inconvenience is, right? Like what did you really want in that exchange? Because we can have that conversation while also noting that somebody else came to you and like wanted something from you at that moment. But when you're a giver, when you're someone who identifies with being a caretaker with, you know, with truly like feeling love from that expression of giving and caring and showing up for people. It can be a growth edge to become what culturally some may even call like hyper independent, but it really is, isn't that. It's about finding a balance that works for you, that doesn't leave you feeling resentful at the end of a conversation or interaction, whether that's with your family member, your team member, your kid, your spouse. Yeah. We don't need that resentment feeling. And I definitely relate to this concept of like, I think most of society tells individuals that they need to be like somehow second to society or to others in one way or another. Mm. And we take that to an extreme. That's so true. And and it's not healthy for the most part, Mm. because like, even if say that time that that person wanted to reserve was just to like, just to exercise. Like say they, they needed to exercise and we know that like our human bodies need to get exercise to stay healthy. And if that got interrupted and was suddenly like the bottom priority for whatever reason, because the, somebody else wanted to demand their time or attention, then we're really impacting ourselves. And, and this is where I want to point out for people that like this is the concept of on the airplane, you put your oxygen mask on first before you do it for the child. Because first of all, if you pass out, that child's not reaching that oxygen Mm -hmm. mask. They're too short. Okay. So you got to be awake (laughs) and capable, which is the same thing in terms of your mental health and your physical health. If you 
can't find time or you can't prioritize that because of other demands on your time and because you don't have the boundaries, then at some point you are going to collapse. It may feel like, especially in your 20s, that you're Superman and you're going to be able to keep going forever on like four hours of sleep. But there is a point where your body will tell you in the terms of like chronic illness that you've overtaxed it. And we don't want that for anybody. Like personally for me, I had to get my gallbladder removed mm-hmm. like, and I'd get like hives on my skin. And those are not great places to be because then you're already in a stressful situation. You're already burned out and then you got to deal with a medical situation. Mm-hmm. So instead, we'd prefer people to never get that far and teach them about boundaries or teach them about like, if they identify as a giver, how to nuance that and say, yes, you can be a giver and you are important. Like you as a person get to reserve time for yourself. You deserve rest. You deserve to prioritize yourself in certain ways because after a certain point, you'll go from giver to dependent really fast if you don't take care of yourself. I really appreciate everything you just said and especially you sharing a little bit about your own journey with well-being and health. I'm curious, like, if you remember... What was the dominant like emotion that you felt in that time period in your life where you were experiencing gallbladder and skin issues? So I most directly tie that to stress from work. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, because as a project manager, most of my job is to protect the team and get roadblocks out of their way and give them structure in order for them to succeed in whatever their portion of the project is. But what that means in some large implementations is that I don't get to be the problem solver. I either don't have the access to the tools or I don't have the domain knowledge to address a problem that is completely stressing Mm -hmm. the team out, that is putting them in a tough position, that has us working 10, 12-hour days. And sometimes that means that I'm in this passive place where the best I can do is order them pizza. (laughs) And that's not a fun place to be. So it becomes a thing where I know what the stressor is. I know what the problem is. And I also know for a fact that I don't get to be the one that solves it. And I don't know when it's going to get solved. So it's this place of not being in control. And that comes with the stress of like, okay, if I've been trying so hard to see if there is a way, right? Because I think this goes back to being a high achiever. Even when you know that you're most likely not going to be able to figure it out on your own, you still want to put in the effort to try to like prove that you did everything that you Mm -hmm. could before you gave up. And that impacts you in all sorts of ways that like I'm driving home and I can't think of anything but work or like when I dream, I dream of the problem uh, that means that I'm not eating well and I already am a very picky eater. And I know that that like I can feel when stress is in my body. But I will say that in that time of my life, I also didn't know how to manage stress either from like the exercise perspective or to get like to do self-care in that way because that was earlier in my career. And I would say I was prioritizing like saving up money and, and all of those things. So my priorities have definitely changed since having some of these health incidents is that suddenly health is number one and it doesn't matter how much it costs. I'm going to address that first. Mm. So the, it sounds like from what, what I hear, heard you say, that the story shift was from like saving money is the priority at the cost of my health to my health is my priority and I'm living abundantly enough. 
in my creative frequency. So I'm creating enough abundance then prioritize my health. Yeah. And I mean that, that like an abundant life is a healthy life, right? It, you're not going to feel abundant no matter how much money you have. If you're stuck to a hospital bed, they really go hand in hand. And it's something where you kind of baby step yourself up to that point where they just go together and it doesn't feel like you have to sacrifice one for the other. Mm. The concept of where my money priorities were is a big part of it. But the other shift I would say is that's the transition from being in my early 20s and feeling invincible and being like, oh, this will be fine because I don't remember anybody in my at my office saying it outright, but I always felt this tone of like, I was the young one and I didn't have kids and I didn't have a spouse to go home to. So I didn't have any like reason that I couldn't commit my hours to be physically in the office and supporting the team. Mm-hmm. So it was this unconscious message because I really don't remember anybody like saying that to me in any kind of way. I don't feel like I was discriminated against consciously or at least not verbally, but there was this expectation that I could verbalize for myself that like I had to put in this work because I was at this particular place in like a status and an age range without like by being single and without kids that impacted what I expected of myself all the time while fighting this concept because I love to articulate for people if I don't have a family and I don't have kids, doesn't mean I don't want them. And I'm never going to find them if I'm stuck at the office all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I wanted to pull out from something you said, this thread of when you were talking about how stressful work is and how that impacts your body. Like today, I feel like a lot of us are getting these messages of self-care, like, you know, do like take your baths, like light your candles. And I'm all for it. I genuinely am. Like, I love candles. I'm a Taurus son. And so I'm a very sensuous person, which means I'm very connected to my senses. And at the same time, like, I know that that's like one part of self-care that is about relaxation. And then I feel like another part of self-care is that work that is about like, where have I internalized this stress? Like this Mm -hmm. external event that was happening to me that I was subjected to or had to experience. Where have I connected this to what I take this to mean about me? And so your story of what other people were taking your presence to mean about you is is a really powerful example of like how people are projecting onto us and if we're not doing the work of like consciously identifying what really makes us feel fulfilled like what is our definition of well-being like what is our definition of being well enough to enjoy our success to ripple that well-being out to our team so that we're not recreating that unhealthy environment of like projecting onto people certain assumptions about what makes them good enough because at the core of it that's what it's about right if you spend this extra time here then you're good enough i feel like we're over it and i'm saying that to like call in that reality you know what i mean so that people who are listening yes. are like, yeah, we're yeah, over it. We're it's done. That, it. that era of work is over. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and I still call people out sometimes. My, my coworker still goes in the office to work and he'll bring home stories. And I'm like, are we in the fifties? Like the concept of <laughs> like that business and home life are separate or that they don't impact each other in a world where clearly everybody's working remotely in some capacity that comes up for me a lot of like pointing that out. And that's where sometimes when I point out like the macho leadership style is a similar concept of like, if you think you can divide those, we're mm. over it. We're not in that space anymore. We don't care about what you think. Like we should be able to segment out. And I want to circle back to something else too, about, about the concept of needing to do that inner work, because as much as you can do all the, like the luxury relaxation, self-care versions, like you mentioned the external influence that that has on us or like, because we're doing it because of the external, but if you don't do the inner work, what you'll typically see is people will say, well, this external thing is stressing me out. So let me just change environments. Let me change my job. Let me go to another situation and hopefully that'll be better, right? That you like go into your interviews or super optimistic that you're going to be in a new environment. And arguably that is a great way to break the habits of having poor boundaries because you're working with new people who have no expectations of you. So you can start new, healthier habits in the new environment, but you can only do that if you've done the inner work and you've decided, okay, this time I am going to leave right at five. I'm shutting down the computer. If somebody wants to talk to me, like they can walk me to my car and then that's it. Like you just like turn the phone off, whatever it is. And that's a valid way when you go to a new environment to make boundaries happen. Yep. And that's a part of my success. Absolutely. And like me doing that is a part of my success. You know, I feel like that's yes. the big reframe that I hope some of our listeners take away from this and feel affirmed in if they've already begun approaching their success in that way. You know, mm -hmm. the other thing I would love to say, which ties into how we experience gender as trans and non-binary leaders too. So I'll get into that. I want to say that when you talk about macho leadership, when I talk about patriarchal leadership, I want to invite all my men in and say that this style of leadership is harmful to men and it's harmful to everybody else. Even though we see visibly men in the most leadership positions and often white men, if we're in predominantly white countries, in those leadership roles, I believe that the structure where you are not harnessing the power of your emotions because you're still in that conditioning where you're pushing your emotions down, you're numbing them, or you aren't able to connect them to show up better as a leader, that takes away from your wholeness and from the gifts and the skills that you have to offer the community, right? So this isn't for the men who are antagonistic, but this is for the men who are also wondering, how do I become a more healed leader? How do I become more emotionally intelligent? Because they've realized that growing up, they really weren't equipped with the skills to recognize their emotions and like the sensations that are going on in their body when something happens. 
uh, when their nervous system goes into fight or flight or when their actions trigger that stressful response for other people, right? So that's also something that really excites me about coaching is as a trans masculine person, I literally have lived both both sides. And now I know that, you know, gender isn't just one or the other, but that's the two modes that are available to most people when they're born. And because that impacts how people treat us and the role that we're being taught to perform in society and as a leader, the giver often is like associated with, uh, you know, a feminized person or a woman, right? And and then mm-hmm. the dictator yeah, or the assertive macho leader is, is more often associated with men because both are rewarded in their own ways for being that. So it's incentivized. Not only that, usually female presenting leaders who lean more macho get penalized for it as well. Exactly, exactly. 100%. Yep. And so I feel like it is my divine calling and responsibility to integrate that invitation into this work that when you walk into coaching, when you decide to cultivate and really move on to your next level as a leader, that cultural upbringing and all of that is still at play. Like we never leave that out of the Mm -hmm. conversation. And I feel like trans leaders and trans people have generously been gifting the rest of our cultures and societies with this invitation and with this, again, like opportunity to step into a more whole version of you and whoever you are. Yeah, you get to be that bridge because you can speak to both sides or or you're visibly representing for somebody something that they couldn't imagine without having you around, right? Mm. Because in, when we refer to like the Asian culture stuff, this always hits me of like the yin and yang concept of you're not whole without both. Just because you were born in a particular body and your biological sex is a certain way and society wants to apply the easy shortcuts of these role expectations on you based off of the way you present your gender that doesn't mean that you have to bury the parts of you that are more interested in the emotional intelligence or Mm -hmm. leading in a style that you admire in your female leaders or in your parents. And this is about like love when you talk about holding space as a coach, because we're talking about making space for the whole you, for every part of you without forcing you to hide who you are. Because if you don't bring all of you to the table, then you don't bring all of the gifts and the benefits and like the perspective that when we talk about the benefits of having diversity in the room and how that helps us be more creative and make better decisions and identify risks better, like you're not bringing everything to the table that you could provide. You're doing yourself a disservice. You're, you're cutting your arm off or you're, you're hobbling yourself. And as difficult as it might seem at first to be visibly all that you are in the workplace, when you do the inner work to understand like what is acceptable behavior from yourself and from your coworkers relating to that slice of your identity, mm-hmm. it is so freeing. 
it is so nice to be able to talk about it openly and saying, hey, so these are my pronouns. And like, I personally don't always mind if people mess it up because like, I, I get that language is hard, right? Like I grew up in a bilingual household. Language is really easy to mess up and extremely powerful. And I love for people to gain confidence, especially in a safe coaching container, to at least talk about it in private and then decide for themselves whether or not certain environments are safe for them to share those slices of identity or those convictions. And we get to make those choice in a case-by-case situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. It reminds me of some clients that I've coached who wouldn't otherwise have met a trans person. Like maybe that's just how their circles ban out, you know, that they wouldn't even mm-hmm. meet someone who was visibly and openly I should say, because a lot of people are trans and we just don't know. And that's where they are in their journey, you know, and that's completely okay. But the reason that that feels important to me as a coach, what you just said about being able to share those slices of our identity, it's because I feel like there's just so much more richness and There's so much more richness, the more we're free to like be ourselves and to joyously, like to delight in everything that someone on the other side of the screen or on the other side of the room gets to experience us as. And I know that my favorite teams to work in and my favorite leaders to coach have been people who have the desire to be open and to come in with that openness and to embrace the fact that none of us know everything. And that's why this is exciting. That's why it's delightful because we're going to discover ourselves through what other people reflect back to us. But we're also going to know more about ourselves just because we get to have a space that's ours. And it just feels really powerful and also really at the core of like why I feel like we're here on a very existential note, you know, like as human beings, I feel like we're here for that to be seen, to be heard and to be fully honored Mm -hmm. for who we are. Yeah. Right. Everybody has a light in them and how brightly you shine is based off of not necessarily you, you can try to actively dim who you are, but usually you like other people will still see you. It will still leak out, but you can turn it up higher when you show up as your authentic self. And I can definitely see how that's rewarding for you, Ion, in terms of coaching somebody who has that desire and knows that they're not a hundred percent there and watching them bloom into the person that they're supposed to be, the person that they were put on this earth to be. And when they do that, they also have a huge impact on the people around them because when you're visibly all that you are, you get to also be representative for other people in spaces where they might not have seen themselves as belonging. You get to alleviate that feeling of imposter syndrome by being somebody who's visibly whatever that identity is. Like in a public space, especially when you're working with leaders, I remember the first place I worked at full-time They switched to like formal dress code all day. And like you could do, you could pay like a donation to a charity on Fridays to wear jeans on Fridays. And then they switched to what they called smart casual, which was basically if you're not 
having a sales meeting with a big executive or an external external vendor, then you can wear jeans and like a clean blouse and all of those things and not worry about what day of the week it was or like whether or not you donated money. And I remember like that wasn't a switch. They didn't say like, hey, this is effective this date. That didn't suddenly mean the whole office switched over to jeans the next day. But our leaders did all showed up in jeans and we saw them walking through the cafeteria and we're like, okay, our leaders are doing it. That means this is real. This is not just talk and getting to see them be like the more casual versions of themselves. And I wouldn't argue that they were, you know, like a fully authentic self yet, but like that, those are the types of things where when you do show up as you and you make some visible changes, it has a ripple effect on your culture. Mm-hmm. It feels important to say that because we're, I believe we're all connected and we're all like imprinting each other all the time, coming in with this consciousness also is about creating space for other people to show up fully, right? So that's why I love mm-hmm. working with yes. the people that I do. And I, I will talk about them all day because we're in a special position. We're in such a special position, right? Where we know what it's like to experience oppression. We know what it's like to experience discrimination, but we also know what it's like to have positional power where we have some level of decision-making authority or some level of impact on the people that we work with. And that spot, that gives us leverage to do the work so that when we're showing up as more and more of ourselves, when we're shining the light brighter and brighter, people are soaking in that light and they're like, oh, I love this. Like, yes, this person shining their light makes me want to step in it and like take some of it and shine my own light brighter. Mm-hmm. And that's how we create well-being that's sustainable because nobody can completely thrive alone at all times. And when we thrive, when we get the tools, when we get the support, that has a ripple effect. And to me, that is like how we create well-being. It doesn't just stop at one person. And that's also how we create a culture of well-being, right? And that feels important to say because I believe we're at a time now where like people like you and me are really innovating what Asianness means to us, like how we absorb parts of our culture and take that to create what we see as culture. Like we're no longer in that era where we're just abiding by traditions simply because they exist. We're now moving into an era where we're going to have to be increasingly flexible and adaptable and innovative as climate change accelerates. And so I fully believe that we're in an era of like creating culture. And I I feel like it starts with how we show up. That's what I've seen. How does that land with you? I'm curious. I love that. We're at the place where people have stopped calling it the great resignation, right? But we're still in a place where people are talking about how to shape the culture in this new world where we're so used to being able to do video calls. Like in the business world, it used to be I was only able to network with other people in the Phoenix area. But now that we're all used to being in online spaces, we get to we get access to global communities. And that, first of all, brings in all these different influences and all these best practices. And we get to go, okay, which parts of these cultures are like good for us as an individual and us as a collective, which parts do we want to keep? Which parts do we want to go ahead and label as toxic and set a boundary around them and call those in and really shape 
the future of our society. And that's a big part of like doing this podcast is to create a community where we talk about like what parts of our Asianness show up in the parts that like maybe we didn't enjoy about how our parents raised us and we get to say, okay, well, like these are the benefits of that. What does it look like to do it differently? And I absolutely love getting to shape that being in this transformational space and talking to others and deciding as a collective what we want it to be and really having that multiplier effect because it's impossible to do on your own. And if you're trying to do it from an unhealthy space, all you're rippling out is that unhealthy toxicity. So it's a hard pill to swallow in terms of like established cultures like large corporations, but it really does. I love how you say how it, it starts with the individual becoming their, their fully healed self and letting that ripple out. And that's the answer that I'm sure most corporations don't want to hear because it's a lot of personal inner work. It's not something they just get to throw money at, but it is the solution. And again, we're talking about the harder path for most people. Coming from where we are now, I, I think it's safe to say that we both think it's a great place to be as an individual. I think it's hard to live your life subject to your emotions instead of consciously creating the emotions that are most beneficial for your well-being and for the well-being of people around you. And part of that isn't to like shut out grief or sorrow or those like anger, those emotions that people think are quote unquote difficult. Part of like, you know, living life on the, on that creative frequency is to accept those emotions, but know how to process them. So you don't like project them onto other people. And so I would say that constantly being subject to your anger, constantly being subject to your stress where you, that's because it's just your default and where you're like not in the creation mode of how you desire to feel, like what makes you feel really good and living your life from that principle. I think that's harder as someone who has lived in that fog and that confusion. Yeah. No, I, especially in the terms of like processing sorrow and in grief and anger. Now that I'm in this this online space where I get to set my own schedule, we have had in America several shootings that have definitely impacted the community. And I remember sitting here thinking, if I was in an office environment and my calendar had been full of back-to-back meetings for the rest of the week, I would not be in a position to process. I would not have the space to be able to understand like what the change meant for me personally, how I felt about it, decide what I wanted to do about that. And that's the hard part I see for established corporate cultures is that we don't currently say, hey, something big just happened. Everybody go take a mental health day mm-hmm. and process, right? Like we, we give ourselves these fake deadlines that we're always trying to push to and it doesn't matter what else happens in the world. And that's where like this, this difficulty comes into place of like, how do I want to lead? Do I want to make space for those kinds of things where somebody says, hey, I personally need for family reasons or, hey, this big thing happened and being able to say, you know what, our project is not such a big deal. Go and be and process who you are and how like these world events Mm -hmm. are impacting you. And that like I find for myself when I give myself permission to take that time, I show up in that higher frequency when I've had my time to recover and I get to be like, okay, well, I'm not dragging out this negative toxic feeling. I've 
processed it and I can move on or I can do mm. something about the thing that caused yeah. that feeling. I'm like surprised, but not surprised at all that you brought up that example. Why do I say that? Because this is another small story. I was on a call yesterday with a new executive coach that I'm going to work with. And she's this like incredible, sweet, really on it with like her subject area expertise. But more than that, what I look for is human beings that are warm, that are kind, that uh, genuinely have an interest in connecting with me. And that's what I offer back to people in my orbit too, right? So we're talking and we were talking about our first email exchange that we had. And she had emailed me to introduce herself around the same time as the Uvalde, Texas shooting happened. Mm -hmm. And this was when I was still full-time in my consulting role at a social change agency. And now I'm an advisor of counsel with them. So I was working with a lot of senior management who had, you know, I was friends with, I had like really solid working relationships with them who were clearly visibly impacted, like we're having a nervous system response, an emotional response to this shooting because they have kids mm -hmm. and our company culture is like, it's a smaller company. So we did have those conversations on Slack about how people were really feeling and like how they could or couldn't show up. But one of the things I did was I had some well-being leave that was left over. And so I decided to take it simply to process and to hold space for my friends who were clearly very impacted by the Texas shootings and also the Buffalo shootings that had happened just a week before that for my Black colleagues and all other colleagues who were feeling the sorrow and the pain of our community members being killed. Now I'm on this call with an executive coach three months later and she tells me when I got your auto response email, that was so impactful for me. And I'm in my 20s. This is a seasoned executive career coach somewhere in her 30s to 50s. I'm not going to try to guess her age, but she's been in the game for <laughs> a little longer than I have. Yes. And that was a leadership moment to me, like her reflecting that back to me, her making me feel seen and saying, hey, this step that you took, that made me feel seen. And that was impactful to me. So often leaders are like tasked with such big, seemingly big assignments because I'm living from this place where well-being is a part of my success formula. Now I'm like still delighting in that moment, right? Like I can still feel how good it feels to connect with someone over something like that. That's just so real for both of us that is so meaningful for us and that is totally embedded into mm. how we show up at work. So I really appreciate you bringing up that example, letting me tell that story. Yeah, I... I love that, right? You were leading by example for somebody who was outside of your organization. You didn't have any like status affiliation between the two of you, but because she got to see that, right? Like she was probably at least able to reflect at a different stage of like reevaluate what priorities were going on or at least be reminded that 
we don't live in a world where everybody ignores mm -hmm. these huge events, the highly impactful emotional events that would typically, like I would see, we just don't talk about and or will like people will joke about it in a way that is very insensitive. So I love that although you didn't necessarily feel like you were as impacted as your colleagues, the fact that you were able to not only take the time off, but also put up an out of office message that like was specific enough that she understood why you were out. Like that intentionality, I absolutely love it. And I love how you frame that in a way that like shows how connected we are. Well, I feel like we could talk forever, but I do want to thank you for this lovely conversation. I feel like we've we've definitely run the gamut of all the topics that we hope to touch on. Um, and there's certainly opportunities in the future that we may speak again and get another episode in there in a future season. Um, but as we close out, is there anything else you would like the audience to know about you or any of the topics that we've covered today? Thank you. I had so much fun talking to you and getting to share the slice of life as you called it and share more about my work. I would say once again, come say hi. I love building connections with people. I love inviting people into my orbit. And so if you're curious about any of the topics that we've talked about or want to share something that resonated with you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on LinkedIn at Ion, and I will also pass it on to TJ. So once again, I'm so glad that you're doing this, TJ. I feel like this is such a gift yes. to all of our communities and to the online business world as well. And I'm really glad that I got to be a part of it. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. I know that something in this episode left you feeling, oh my God, that's so me. And I want to hear about it. Leave a review on iTunes or tag me on social media and share your relatable story with us so that we can normalize our experiences as Asian Americans and help more people feel safe to step outside of the box. I can't wait to hear about it. You can find me on Instagram at tj.wey and don't forget to design your abundant life. <laughs>